Feeding on the Real Presence of God Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Sunday, August 15th, 2021 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Rev. David Pelegi continues to lead us in contemplating the beautiful, confusing, and controversial words of John 6. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus invites us to be fed by Him. God desires to provide for us in abundance as we encounter His life-giving presence. The best, most Christ-centered place to meet God and have Him meet our needs is at the table He sets for us with bread and wine. Friends, before we continue, we thank you for listening. As the pandemic continues, the tourists have not yet returned to Israel. Our ministry funding usually comes through the generosity of visitors to the church, guest houses, museum, and those traveling with Shoresh study tours. As we continue to pray for the end of the pandemic, we ask you to remember us in your prayers and in your charitable giving. Stay connected with us through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is from Proverbs, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is Psalm 34, verses 9 to 14. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life, and desires to see many good days. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel portion from the Gospel of John, still in chapter 6. Please stand as we hear the good news from the teaching of the Messiah himself. I am the the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, 
and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogues of Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we do ask that in your mercy you would indeed make the words of your Son, Jesus, alive to us. May they be applied to our hearts by your Spirit, and may they bring us life, divine life, to the divine presence. And Lord, may they give each one of us a passion, Lord, to want to fellowship with you and to dwell with you, to encounter you, and to know your living presence in each moment of our daily lives. And we ask these things again, as always, for the sake of Jesus, that he may be glorified in our midst. And Lord, we ask for ourselves because indeed we are needy and hungry, and we do need this bread from heaven. We do need to eat flesh and drink blood so that we may have life in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, we um, are trying to be dutiful and uh, to follow the lectionary, and uh, it is not that uh, we're enslaved to the lectionary. I think we've said it before. We many times change it, but it is a good discipline, and trying to pick our way through John chapter 6 is a really good discipline because it's not something many of us would do naturally, and if we did, we might just kind of connect or focus on one verse or two verses um, and not get the sense, yes, of uh, the of what is being said in its entirety. And on one hand, it is very beautiful. There's some of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament, beautiful sayings of Jesus, come from this passage. And on the other hand, it's confusing and controversial and uh, sometimes difficult for us to really know what is Jesus saying. And so now I have to, you know, make a confession here. For years when I sort of read these verses or read things, uh, sayings of Jesus about you know, mutual indwelling or the Father being in us and we being in the... And always make, again, doesn't always make sense to me, and I don't think I fully understand it now. But my mind, here's my confession, but always go back to that nonsensical Beatles song. You know, the line starts off, I am he and you are he and uh, you are me and we are all together. 
I don't know what that means. It confuses me. But in all honesty, I don't think I'm alone. Some of these sayings of Jesus kind of confuse us or wash over us. And we might need a lifetime, really, to fully appreciate what he's saying to us. But we need to make the effort and, to, and we need to begin. The reference to the Beatles song was just for Roger. He's a closet Beatles fan. I understand, you know. Um, and so in this chapter, Jesus, and I just remind you for a moment or two, Jesus issues um, an invitation, and the invitation that he issues uh, is in the context of a miracle. He does a miracle, and then he explains that miracle using the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament uh, as its main uh, illustration. And in the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and probably is the easiest part of this chapter to, to talk about. Uh, the thing that strikes me the most uh, about that story is not only that Jesus provides food for a lot of people, but that uh, Jesus provides in abundance. Yes, there are 12 baskets left over. It's the only gospel in which we know that uh, there were so many leftovers, yes? Uh, so many doggy bags that people um, actually uh, could take home. And I think one of the first things we learn from this is that Jesus has the ability to nourish Yes, and to meet our most basic, fundamental human needs in abundance. So much, so much, yes, of what ails us is our limited, limited view of God. God, our God is too small. Now, when I say all this, I'm not going to preach the prosperity gospel. But there is a truth. There is a side to God that wants to provide and care for us in an abundant way. And, and it's like many of us don't fully believe it. It's like maybe God can supply my needs, but I better get in there and fight and push and, you know, somehow take care of myself. Yes, the miracle, that feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of John chapter 6 reminds us of God's character a God of abundance, yes, who not only meets our physical needs, but can, if we, yes, believe in him, Jesus goes on to say, if we believe in him, um, and literally the Greek says, believing into, yes, if we believe into, yes, the person that he is, if we're willing to trust him, if we're willing to abide in him, because that's the meaning of the word belief in John's gospel, are we willing to be committed to him and do what he says? If we believe in him, Jesus says we will never go hungry. In the context, really, in the first part of that chapter, as we talked about last week, is this a, is this, it's a revelation of who Jesus is, and it's obeying his words. Yes, obeying his commandments, yeah, patterning, uh, put, making our lives or modeling our lives, you know, on his life. But um, now 
the, let's look at 51, verse 51. There's a turn. Yes, the, the discussion leaves this understanding of uh, revelation. It leaves this understanding of teaching and discipleship exactly as we traditionally understand it. All right. Uh, and it's going to take us to a place that I believe is, is deeper. And this is verse 51, if I may read it. It starts by saying, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And by the way, that's in the present tense. It's not, um, that, sorry, that's in the future tense. This, is the, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. That moves from the future tense into the present tense. So when Jesus is talking about life, he's talking about life in the world to come, but life in this, in this world as well. And it says, Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? You know what's so ironic about that verse? Because we, throughout the history, uh, through a lot of the recent history of the Christian church, have argued violently amongst ourselves, yes, about what Jesus is going to say. Yes, if you come and talk about believing in Jesus, no problem. You talk about Jesus being, uh, being the Lord who uh, demands or asks us to follow him and to be his disciple, no problem. But the minute you want to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, oh my goodness, fireworks, yes, controversy. In fact, in, in all honesty, isn't it, it is very hard to talk about this because, or very hard to look at the scripture, because it's all or still embroiled in a debate that's 400 years old and probably isn't relevant anymore into the day in which we live. Yet still many people are living as 400 years ago. And the debate was between the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, and the minute you want to talk about this verse, people put up their, put up their dukes and they want to fight. Yes, and they say, you're not talking about transubstantiation, are you? And I could have said, of course not. Of course not. I'm not talking about transubstantiation. But I am talking about something real. Yes. Even the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin and Wesley, yeah, they all believed that when we come to this table, we're not eating, the, literally eating the flesh of Jesus. We're not eating his hair and his arm. It's not a form of cannibalism. But from this verse and other ver from these verses and other verses, they understood that coming to the Lord's table in the right manner means that we're encountering, yes, the presence of the living God. Yes, we're encountering his presence. And so this language in John chapter 6 begins to shift and it begins to have uh, many references as to what we call the Eucharist, or to what we call uh, communion. And these references are 
I think, uh, pretty clear. And almost from the beginning, I mean from the beginning, yes, up until recent times, the church, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, yes, have always understood there's been a consensus, even though there's sometimes a disagreement in the consensus, yes, that when we come to the Lord's table, we are encountering, yes, we are encountering this living, uh, this living, uh, living Jesus. Now, the key passage in all of this, if it, may I draw your attention to, is not the fact that people argue and sometimes still argue. The key passage and and what the verses that we read is in fifty six. And in 56, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks, drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Yes. So coming to the believing in Jesus, right, is not an end in itself. Believing in Jesus and having our sins forgiven is not the end in itself. Yes. The reason that we trust, the reason that we become disciples, the reason that we um, ask to have our sins forgiven. All of these things is so that we can enter in to a relationship with the Lord. I think it was last week, was it not, that we talked about Israel in the desert. Yes, God called Israel out to the desert, and he liberated them from Pharaoh. He saved them from death. He gave them water. He gave them food and so on, and so on, and so on. And then he said to them in Exodus 29, I did all of these things, and now I'm setting up the tabernacle so your sins will be forgiven. I did all of these things so that I can dwell among you. And when Israel wouldn't trust, when Israel refused, yes, to obey God, when Israel sinned and would not uh, repent, yes, of course that destroyed ends up destroying relationship. And the kind of relationship that Jesus is now offering us is, on one hand, you see it somewhat in the Old Testament because Jesus, sorry, because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he indwelled the people of Israel. He lived not only in their midst, but he lived in them. We know this from Exodus 25, verse 8. The Lord said, build me a sanctuary and I will live in you. I won't live in the box. I'm going to live in you. And now it's not simply the people of Israel that God wants to indwell. Through his son, he wants to live in us. And that pattern that sometimes, again, I think it's so confusing and abstract, and you think, gosh, what does this mean? And it sounds mystical, and it sounds like guru stuff or new age stuff. That pattern of abiding, right? That pattern of abiding, of, of uh, us abiding in, in, in Jesus, of abiding in that relationship, that is, we can see the model we can see what it's supposed to be like, should be like, yes, in the relationship that the Father has with the Son. 
Yes? The Father and the Son abide in each other. And just let me read you um, two verses from, again, from John. And this is the whole thrust of John's gospel. The whole thrust is a relationship. Yes? It's a relationship. But it's a relationship with a person. And you know what's very sad to me is that sometimes in our communities we talk about faith. But we talk about faith as a thing. Yes? It's not, oh, I have faith. Um, or other people talk about having some kind of faith. But what's really important and very, very specific is that it's faith in a person. It's faith in God and, the, and in his son. It's, it's not my faith exactly. Um, or, or faith isn't something that's man-centered or directed, something that I have. First of all, that faith, any faith that I have is a gift from God. And secondly, that faith is not directed towards something neutral. Yes, I'm saved by faith, people say. I'm not saved by works. That's such a poor statement. I'm saved by faith. Yes, I'm saved by faith in the Son of God. All right? So we have to always make sure it's attached to a person. But John... Um, May I just remind you, right, of what is on offer to us? Because, again, sometimes it can be a little fuzzy. So John 14 says the following. It says, um, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, after I, I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father who is living in me and doing his work. Right? Right? Jesus doesn't somehow come down and just say, hey, here I am. But all that he does, he's doing, yes, through the Father. And of course, there's the passage in John 10. Jesus says, Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what the Father does. But, I, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Okay? And so the relationship that Jesus has with the Father is the same relationship that he wants to have with us. Yes? He wants to indwell us, to live in us, and he offers us the opportunity. He invites us to live in him, to live in him. And how do we do that? How do we live in him? Or how does he live in us? And previously, we spoke about the, the importance of belief, belief, believing in Jesus, not as an intellectual proposition, okay, but uh, believing him in, in him as, as an action verb, as trusting into, allowing, giving him our lives, 
giving, turning our future over to him, allowing him to heal our past and to make sense of the mess that we've made in our lives, uh, surrendering, you know, all of our uh, hatreds or our desires to get even or our love of the world, yes, surrendering those things that um, we think satisfy us, but in the end cause us malnutrition, like careerism or hipsterism or looking for authenticity, yes, or finding somehow our total and only meaning in our family instead of finding it in him. And so as a way of... As a way, yes, of Jesus trying to get this reality across. Yes, the reality of trusting, yes, commitment, discipleship, all of those things. But he goes further to say, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, in the whole context, we could think, ah, that's just symbolic. And there is a lot of symbolism into it, in it. Or we could say, that's just a memorial. And it's true, that's just a memorial. But if we only limit the Lord's table to symbolism or a memorial, my dear friends, we're missing a lot. We're missing something incredibly, incredibly huge. Because in verse 54, when Jesus uses the word eat, And similarly, in three other verses in this passage, when he uses the word eat, the Greek word is to chomp. You know what the word, some of you may not be, no American slang. It's to um, to, to, to eat his flesh is, the word is, to eat loudly with your mouth open. Yes, almost like an, an animal eats. In fact, in most Greek usages of the word, it's connected to animals. And so this is, sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? And it sounds kind of weird. Yeah. And it sounds, yeah, you know. And why is it there? So let me tell you the story of... Um, there was a very famous American novelist, and she was from Georgia, and her name was Flannery O'Connor. And Flannery O'Connor was a very devout Roman Catholic, but she was also a very serious and popular novelist. And her stories, many of her stories were a bit weird, and they were a bit gross. For example, there was a story called The River, in which um, a young boy goes to a revival meeting. And then he goes to this revival meeting and he comes to faith and comes to Christ. And he goes and the evangelist baptizes him in the river. And the next day, his family rejects him. And so he wants to go back to the river and baptize himself so he can feel like he did on the first day. And in the story... The little boy drowns in the river. And people said to her, first of all, I I hope you can see the symbolism, right? There's baptism, death, right? Self-denial. 
But people say, why do you write such gross things? That's, by the way, only a tip of an iceberg. Why do you write about such weird things and murder and, you know, people that, are, that live and act in an ugly way? And she says, I do it because my audience is blind. And I want to write in big letters and paint big pictures so that nobody will miss the message. And in our books, book, our study of the book of Revelation, we see the same thing. Yeah, there's some really, really disturbing pictures in the book of Revelation. But if they weren't there, we may not uh, be able to absorb what the Lord is telling us. And in this case, Jesus wants us, yes, to come to that understanding that what he's asking us to do is to do something physical. It's to do something physical, to come and to eat bread and to drink wine, yes, and to do it, yeah, knowing that this is a way in which he lives in us and we will live in him. Yes, it's that mutual indwelling. It's what God has wanted for us from the beginning. But unfortunately, sin, yes, destroyed, uh, destroyed, that, destroyed that relationship. Now, many people object. Many people, again, think too small about communion. Just as we think too small about um, what it means to have uh, the Lord Jesus dwell in us and for us to dwell in him. Which, by the way, once when we do dwell in the Lord Jesus and he dwells in us, we then, it's our, it's, it extends to being in the Father and the Father being in us. And so the objections, and some of which I want to discuss next week, but the, 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 the objections go um, often like this. Oh, yes, you know, how can communion save you? Or how can communion do any of this thing? After all, it's not spiritual. It's just physical. Yes. But let me remind you, baptism is not spiritual. And may I remind you that anointing with oil is not spiritual. I mean, uh, spiritual. It is something physical. And that God from the beginning has always connected worship and his presence with food. When Israel would come and offer sacrifices, yes, the sacrifice was called a korban. And the korban, yes, comes from the word karov, the way that Israel would draw close to the Lord and please him, yes, was by doing something physical. Yes. And so just because something is physical doesn't disqualify it, yes, from it in and of itself uh, being spiritual. And then people say, well, it's just some form of magic. If taken properly, if we come to the Lord's table in the right way, it is certainly no, it is not any form of magic. In fact, what it does, it puts the central focus, the ultimate central focus on Jesus himself and the work that he does. Now, in John's gospel, in John's gospel, the, this Jesus giving himself 
this, and I said this on Wednesday, is not connected to his death. And it's not connected to his resurrection. It's connected to his life. It appears here in the middle of his ministry. Yes. And Jesus talks about that life. And so when we think about coming to the Lord's table, it's not simply that we coming to, to share in his death and resurrection or to remember or recall that death and resurrection. It is that we're, what Jesus offers us is a participation in his life. Yes. We participate in his life just as he participates in the life, just as he participates in the life of the Father. But as I was saying, what is so Jesus-centered about this? Very easily. Music, yes, and please music team, don't take this personally, yes, can easily become a performance, and it can easily become entertainment. And music as a part of a service can uh, become uh, the very thing that people say, I don't like that music. I don't like the way she sings. I don't like the way he plays the bass. I'm going to another church. And even worse is preaching. Yes, people come to church or not come to church because of the preaching. I don't like the preacher like the preacher. I don't, oh, the preacher, you know, he's getting too big for his britches. He's becoming a personality cult. Oh, that preacher is so humble. Oh, the messages are too long. The messages are too short. The message, whatever. Yes, and it's very easy for worship in our life to become some kind of performance instead of some kind of community participation. But when you come to the Lord's table, it's what the Lord is doing. It's Jesus-focused. It's Jesus-centered. We participate in that we're giving him bread and wine. That's the f- we're giving him our praise and thanksgiving. And I'll say something more about that next week. Because the word Eucharist means thank- being thankful. Yes? And you can't have a relationship with someone unless you're grateful. Real relationship is based on gratitude. And every week, we're expressing our gratitude for the life of Jesus, for his death of Jesus, for the resurrection of Jesus. And I know some people say, well, let's just do it once or twice a year so it doesn't get too common. Okay, try kissing your wife who you love once or twice a year because you don't want to, you don't want to spoil it or it to become too common. And so people have objections, but the best illustration for all of this is actually the one that Jesus gave. It's the manna. And in that manna, yes, what do we, what do we remember about the manna? The manna was, if you may remember, the manna was misunderstood. Just like many times the Lord's table is misunderstood. Yes, people come because it's a habit. <clears throat> people come because they think it's some magic. People come because they think it's going to uh, help them, you know, in their career. Right? We come to the Lord's table because we want to be with Jesus. It's not the only way of being with Jesus, but it's an important way of being with Jesus. Yes, 
The Lord's table is also what we see. Sometimes it's small, and people think it's insignificant, just like manna was small. Yes? But remember, manna was sufficient for the needs of the people. And this, the table of the Lord, yes, is also sufficient for us. Sufficient for us. Don't forget that manna was a miracle. And so what happens at this table, again, if we come believing, if we come trusting, if we prepare ourselves to meet with the Lord, yes, also it's a miracle. It's a miracle as well. And finally, manna was sweet. And remember Psalm 34. Actually, we didn't get the verse in. But Psalm 34 is a beautiful psalm. It says, um, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord, which, by the way, the idea of seeking the Lord in the Psalms is about worship, yes, and the proper kind of worship. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So I think coming to the Lord's table should tell us, yes, informs us, not informs us, or invites us to come and see and taste that the Lord is good. Come and see and taste that the Lord is good. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we invite you. And that's why in this service, we prepare for coming to the Lord's table. That's why the service builds up, builds up to the Lord's Supper, that it's not done flippantly or by accident, but we take it with the utmost seriously. Because as Paul warns, warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we don't take it seriously and we come to this table in the wrong manner or with the wrong intention, that we might find ourselves sick or we might even find ourselves, uh, find someone else having a funeral for us. Yes, that's how serious we should take this. It reminds me, does it not, of um, those Israelites who encountered the presence of the Lord by improperly going into the temple or the tabernacle. Yes, and the consequences were, were awful. And so, by all means, let us take, uh, take it seriously uh, and take it seriously knowing, again, that the Lord wants to live in us and we who are hungry, who have human needs, who need eternal life both now, yes, and after our death, yes, we need to enter into that relationship with the Lord. Of course, that's the eternal life that's on offer. Father in heaven, these are elementary things, but so often your people, we don't fully appreciate what you have to offer us. We don't appreciate what you want to give us, eternal life, divine life, yes, and indwelling with you and in dwelling with the Father. 
a relationship, yes, that satisfies not only our human needs, but the needs of the whole world. Lord, help us to fully or to better appreciate these things. Lord, have a reverence not only for you and your word, but also for your table. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.